A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello, dear listener, and welcome back to another episode of season six of Owning It, the Anxiety Podcast, with me, your host and author, Caroline Foran. For this episode, I am joined by the legendary Katie Milkman who I think I've quoted a few times in, if not all of my books, definitely two of them. She has certainly been an inspiration on all three. Katie is an award-winning warden professor, a leading behavioral scientist, and a regular guest on Freakonomics, which is probably my favorite podcast ever. Her new book is called How to Change, the science of getting from where you are to where you want to be. But I mean, we've heard of so many books like this. Katie is no fluff talker. This is hardcore neuroscience and behavioral economics and behavioral science and unpacking why it's so hard to change and how to actually set about making lasting positive change. So here in this episode, we talk about habits and change when it comes to anxiety in particular. We talk about our conflicting human need for both stability and change that often butts heads, uh, resulting in anxiety and so much more. We talk also about the power of labeling and how describing yourself as an anxious person will most definitely impact your behavior in a way that actually perpetuates the anxiety. I am a bit of a fangirl, you'll probably be able to tell, uh, so forgive me as I as I fawn over her throughout this episode, but if you go and look into her work to date, you will no doubt feel the same. So enjoy this episode, it was really interesting for me to have this conversation with her, a real book at this moment for me as I'm I'm such a, a Freakonomics fan, and yeah, thank you as always for the feedback, for the reviews, for sharing, I, I appreciate every message, even if I don't get time to reply to everyone, it means the world, so thank you so much. Katie Milkman, thank you so much for joining me on Owning It, the Anxiety Podcast. I'm so, I'm actually kind of having a fangirl moment here um, having you on, so I can't thank you enough for making the time. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. You're an award-winning behavioral scientist, economist, podcaster, writer, now author with your new book, How to Change. Your list of accolades is staggeringly impressive, almost just a little bit intimidating. And while I could spend an entire podcast talking about all that you've achieved, I wanted to start by asking you, 
obviously your book is all about how to implement change and achieve our goals but I'm curious when you get there for yourself and you've achieved so much how good are you at taking stock and celebrating the success that we're all kind of striving for in the first place? That's a great question. I try to be really deliberate about it but I do a much better job when the goal that's been achieved is a shared goal than when it's an individual goal. I can give you an example. One of the best things about my career is that I mentor doctoral students. It's a really big part of being a university faculty member who's doing research is coaching the next generation and raising the next generation. And actually it's big part of what makes me productive is working with brilliant young people who make my job easy because they do a lot of the work. And I, you know, we talk about ideas and then they often go out and are the ones to implement them. And the, the road to our end goal in those collaborations is that we're trying to publish an academic paper, which often takes, well, the fastest it's ever gone in my entire career is six months from start to finish. And it's normally more like six years. They're, they're long labors. <laughs> and we in academia generally don't do a great job of celebrating those. It's a very arduous process. You start with an idea and it feels exciting. And then you collect data and the data normally isn't exactly what you expected it to be. And that can be frustrating. Maybe you have to go back to the drawing board, collect data a little bit differently to try to really understand what you were trying to get at. Then you submit it to a journal after you've written up your results and then they normally reject you. And then you try another journal. And if you're really lucky, they say, well, it's not good this way, but you can revise it. And eventually you get published. By the time you do, you're so worn out and so tired of this project. But one thing I do really well is that my students are always taken out, well, pre-pandemic, for a, a special dinner to celebrate each paper. Once every six years. <laughs> right. Well, we do more than one paper at a time. So okay, normally okay. there's a couple of good outcomes every, you know, I'd say this happens more like once every four months that okay. we have something big to celebrate That's because you good. work on a number of projects at a time. Yeah. And it's, it's something I love. I remember I worked briefly, very briefly for a summer in college in investment banking, and they have a nice way of doing this. Whenever they complete a deal in investment banking, they buy a deal toy for everyone who's on the team. That's what they call them. They're like little trophies. And they somehow normally would have the, the brand name. If they'd you know done an IPO for Google, you'd get a little trophy that has Google's logo on it or something along those lines. And then you know people who've been around a long time have lots of these trophies all around. I do think I think finding ways that you can very deliberately celebrate and stop and look at that moment, whether it's by buying a toy, which probably is less meaningful than having a special meal with the people you accomplish something with. I think that's really important. And I do try to do it. But like I said, I do it better with other people involved than when it's a, a personal goal. How common do you think it is in our pursuit of change and goals? How common do you think it is to just diminish it when we get there? Do you think that's a universal thing? The challenge with goals is there's always someone who's achieved more, Yeah. right? There's always further to go. Once you have written a paper that got into a great journal, there's always a better journal or another paper or a, a bigger blockbuster book or a podcast that has more subscribers than mm -hmm. the one that you've achieved. So I do think we very quickly tend to pivot from accomplishing one thing to looking to what the next will be. Yeah. I think that's likely quite universal and, and natural and probably valuable in a sense, because if you just 
sat back on your haunches after you'd achieved a goal and said, well, now I'm done, you would, you'd stop moving pretty quickly. So I, it's probably healthy in a sense, but I think it's healthy if you punctuate it with some celebration, which I think is what you're getting at. Yeah, absolutely. So just for a bit of context for my listeners, your work happens, would I be right in saying, in kind of the Venn diagram where economics or behavioral economics and psychology meet? Yes, absolutely. Where economics and psychology meet, that is my home turf. And uh, when I talk to economists, they call me a psychologist. And when I talk to psychologists, they call me an economist, which tells you that I have no home. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Because I was going to say you're the first economist I've had on the series. And I first came across you listening to um, Freakonomics and learning all about temptation bundling. And to this day, I listen a lot to No Stupid Questions um, with your, your, well, is she your colleague, Angela Duckworth, or you're just your Angela, peer? Yes, she's my colleague. We, we are both professors at the University of Pennsylvania. And as of last July 1, we are both in the same department at Wharton. She joined my department uh, with us. She's half in the psychology department and half in my business school department, which is even more wonderful. And we co-direct a, set, a research center together. Well, if there was two women I would want to have at a dinner party, it would be you. Maybe Stephen Dubner could come along as well, just because he's interesting. <laughs> Let's definitely have Stephen Dubner. And I I look forward to that dinner party. It sounds yeah, great. You guys just touch on so many things um, that are just so interesting. And for the for the um, relevance of this podcast, we're looking at, you know, anxiety and how to, to better manage it. And, and I think the idea of change is really relevant to anyone suffering with anxiety. We all we all want to change, you know, and we we hit these roadblocks and they, you know, the need to change can bring about anxiety. The struggles that we come up against can cause more anxiety. But something I've been thinking about a lot lately is, and I don't know if you, and this is me coming from no sort of expert background, this is just a hunch I have, but we seem to have this like dichotomous need for change, but also for stability. And I kind of, find it kind of fascinating and I think that maybe this is where a lot of our anxiety comes from where these two drives we have are butting heads all the time I just was curious if you had any thoughts on that it's a really powerful observation and I agree that (laughs) (laughs) they do butt heads I think the best of both worlds is actually and this is often advice I give when people are thinking about change trying not to bite off too much at once. There's really great research showing that when you have a series of goals and a series of plans you make to achieve those goals, it's you're better off doing it in sequence rather than all at once. If you try for a series of changes, if you try, try to make a set of changes all at once, I want to be more outgoing, find a new job, find a new life partner, and go to the gym more regularly. That would be a list of changes okay, maybe you want all those things, but choose one and work on it right now. And once you feel somewhat satisfied with the outcome or that you're making good progress, then you can turn to the next as opposed to all at once. When we try to do it all at once, it's demotivating. Mm -hmm. We feel overwhelmed. And so because having some routines and some stability can be really valuable and free up resources and energy for other things, that might be the best of both worlds is that if we just focus on one change at a time, we can still have a lot of stability. We can have the focus we need to achieve the change, but, but we probably don't have that intuition. We, when we we're excited about our ambitions, we want to tackle lots of things at once. So if we take on one thing at a time, then that, what can become, what is um, like unfamiliar becomes familiar. And then that change becomes our bit of stability in life. And then we free ourselves up to make another change in another direction. I like that way of thinking about it. I, 
I haven't ever seen research looking at this question specifically and how it spills over to anxiety, but we well, do there know you that- go. That's your next project. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Well, we, we do know that change comes more easily when people focus on one thing at a time. Okay. And is it human nature to always need to be improving? Cause the change is always change to better ourselves, right? Well, the change that we strive for typically is towards betterment rather than I I'm striving to change in a worse way, right? That would yeah. be a funny ambition to have. So yeah, I think that's right. That it, it seems to be human nature to always be looking for improvements we can make to ourselves rather than either stagnation or how can I return to, uh, you might think a past version of yourself or a past experience was better and try to get back to that, Yeah, but it's still that you believe it's a superior state. And why do we have this drive to improve? Like, is it, does it come back to a need for survival or if survival was our brain's primary concern, would we not be just better off with the basics? Like where, where does the need to improve come in? I'm going to tap on economic theory to help with this and say that I think economists really have it right when they say we're driven by the desire for increasing rewards we want. And, and that doesn't mean cash. Rewards, is a that's just a general term to explain good things in life. Good things can be social approval. They can be cash. They can be um, happiness that comes from a job well done. So we we're driven by the desire to achieve those kinds of rewards and change is normally the path that gets us to more rewards. Because if you're just doing, continue doing exactly the same thing, you'll get the same level of reward, but more rewards are better. We always yeah. want more good things and change is the way you imagine you can get to more good things, whether again, whether it's social approval or cash in your pocket or a job title that's fancier, whatever it might be. It's it's frustrating how many uh, books and podcasts and Pinterest platitudes that there are out there telling us, you know, just it's as simple as just pursue your dreams, smash your goals. In reality, we obviously come up against so many roadblocks and those roadblocks, I think, can cause a lot of anxiety for people. And um, we don't when we don't understand why we're not getting somewhere, we feel stressed or demotivated. And I think from reading your book it's the first thing that the most important thing if you're going to is said about making any change is understanding how change happens so if could you give us a little background in 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 that yeah this i would say is the biggest takeaway from all the work i've done on behavior change over the course of my career and i love the way you put it that that we think it will just happen and the mistake that so many people make is not trying to diagnose what are the obstacles. And I should say organizations as well. It's not just individuals who make this mistake. Anyone yeah. looking to create individual change in their own life, in the lives of others, the the tendency is to look for a single one-size-fits-all shiny solution or to expect that that just pushing hard enough will get you there. And instead, it's really important to find what is the obstacle? What is the barrier? Is it that doing the things that are going to be good for you and for your change goals in the long run, like say going to the gym more regularly or staying off of social media or spending time with loved ones? Is it that they're not actually enjoyable in the moment? Like, are you not enjoying them? So that I feel like it feels like a chore because I have to get off the couch or is it that you 
haven't made concrete enough plans and haven't really prioritized and put time on the calendar. And so you forget, or is the barrier that you don't believe in yourself? You don't think I I can't do it. I could never run a marathon. That's just too far for me. It's too much. So what is the obstacle or set of obstacles? Often it's more than one thing. Uh, Once you understand what that is, then science actually has a lot of insights to offer about strategies that can put you in range of success that can make it more feasible to accomplish your goals. But it's that tailoring that I see is so often missed and, and that recognition of what is the specific roadblock so that, so you can tackle it in a wise way. I'd love to give you an example that we could maybe unpack here for, for this particular podcast. If we look at some change that I think a lot of people will find and they relate to listening is that when people feel really anxious, they then turn to things like meditation or breathing or yoga. When they feel bad, they turn to these things in a crisis to try and say, oh, I'm going to become this person now who's super zen and I know I need to do these things to help my anxiety. And we don't, for me, the the most obvious roadblock is when we feel well or we feel fine, we just forget about it. We don't, there's no Mm. urgency there. So maybe that's something we could look at to to give some listeners some like actionable advice here. Like what, what would you see there as what's happening behind the scenes there? Yeah, I love that. That there, it seems like what you're describing is that it hasn't been made into a habit. It's yeah. the 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 behaviors we only reach for them in moments of crisis, and then we let them fall by the wayside because they aren't second nature. They aren't sort of our default. The path of least resistance is to skip doing the meditation when things are feeling fine. And so, I actually think building habits around for instance, meditation could be a really fruitful path to take to change the path of least resistance. So I, I use the term laziness in my book, which I actually don't mean in the insulting way it sounds. Oh, like I don't I mean mind. It. I am the laziest person <laughs> ever. Like I am all about the path of least resistance. I can't get anything done. Like whatever is going to be the quickest way to me getting a result, I'll do it. Well, it's, I actually think that it's funny how much we denigrate people for laziness, but I do think it's very adaptive, meaning it makes a lot of sense why humans would have evolved with a a desire for the path of least resistance to find the quick and easy way, because our energy is a limited resource and you want, you want to be wired to look for quick, easy solutions as opposed to long, arduous ones. Yeah. That's why Steve Jobs hired people, isn't it? (laughs) It's, It's certainly, if you think about Apple's great products, they are fab- fabulously easy. You don't have to look at an instruction manual. A kid, a, a baby practically can figure mm-hmm. out how to use them. And so they have absolutely played to the path of least resistance in our lazy instincts of not wanting to have to master a new technology. We don't have, no mastery is required. It's, it's obvious. But habits are, in a sense, a solution to the path of least resistance or a type of path of least resistance. One thing you can do to create a path of least resistance is um, for a one-time behavior, you can set what's called a default. And that means you can set things up so that if you, if you don't lift a finger, this is the thing that happens, or this is the easiest thing to do. Like we can have certain snacks in our pantries that are healthy. And then the default is, oh, well, I don't, you know, I'd have to go down the street to the store to get something else. So I'll eat this healthy food as my snack. So you've set yourself up for success. But in a lot of life, we can't just change the environment in a way that that creates 
defaults. And, and instead, what we need to do is build habits so that our automatic response or our daily routine involves doing something like meditating. And so thinking about how to build habits, there's a large body of research showing an important thing to start with is a consistent cue, like a consistent time of day or a consistent situation. Like as soon as I wake up in the morning, maybe it's not always the same time, but it's always when I wake up in the morning or it's always after I get off work. Uh, that would be an example of a cue. And then you enact the behavior like meditation and you give yourself some reward for having achieved that, whether it's a pat on the back or you track your progress on an app. And so you can see the streak accumulating of how many days in a row, and maybe the app gives you a badge, whatever that is there, or you tell someone I did it again, whatever that reward is that you give yourself, or you have a chocolate, you repeat that. And there's debate and it varies by behavior on how long it takes to form a habit by going through this cycle over and over again, but somewhere between weeks and months. And you eventually start to find that this is automatic. You're no longer thinking about it. You don't have to crave it or feel the need to do it. It just is what you do. Um, one really interesting study that I was involved in looking at habit formation, though, showed one feature of it that we had wrong or that past research I'll say had wrong. I certainly had it wrong. I had the wrong prediction. It was a study we did where we were trying to help people build exercise habits, but you could easily imagine having done exactly the same thing around meditation. And we did it in partnership with Google and 2,500 of their employees enrolled in a program for a month where we were encouraging them to exercise and we were trying to build a habit. So the goal was that at the end of this month program, we would no longer be involved in their lives, but we'd yeah. still measure and see that they're still going to the gym. And we had two groups. We randomly assigned people either to a group where we encouraged them using incentives and reminders and so on to go to the gym consistently at the same time each day. So in the same narrow two hour window. And the idea there was the more consistency around the cues and the timing of this habit, the better. And then people will build a really robust habit if around going to the gym at their usual time. The other group, we had them plan what's the best time for them. We sent them reminders to go at the best time for them, but we rewarded them for going at any time of day. So what we ended up with is two groups. One of which they went to the gym at the same frequency over the course of a month, but one group went 85% of the time at the same time of day. And the other group, only half of their workouts were at a consistent time. And the other half were all over the place. We were, we were really interested in what, which group would have the more robust habit. And we were pretty sure that it would be the group that had gone more consistently and we were wrong. It turned out the group that built the more lasting habit had gone to the gym half the time at a consistent time, but half of their workouts were all over the place. And what happened when we unpacked the data is that the people who had formed these really, really consistent routines, they did go a little bit more. If 7 a.m. was, say, their regular time, they were slightly more likely to show up then at 7 a.m. after the program ended than the folks in the, in the, I'll call it the flexible group, mm -hmm. but we'd made these people rigid. If they didn't make it at 7am, they didn't go at all. Okay. Whereas the flexible group, if they missed their 7am workout, they came at noon or they came at 5pm. So they had, instead of forming a rigid habit, they formed an elastic habit is how I now refer to it. So they had a rule that wasn't, I'll only go to the gym. If it was rather, I'll go to the gym, no matter what. And that turned out to be really important. So that's one thing I would say, if people are thinking about forming a meditation routine that I think can be really 
valuable to recognize an obstacle to a robust habit is that life throws you curveballs and you cannot count on being able to do it under the same circumstances at the same time every day. But if you want to really build a lasting sticky habit, you want to be able to do it with a lot of consistency. And that means you need to practice and and form a habit around doing it no matter what, not if and only if you have the perfect circumstances. So that's a piece of advice I would offer is if you, if you try to build a habit up, try to do it most of the time at the same time, but also practice doing it in other circumstances and, and build that robustness and build a habit that's a no matter what habit. Okay. I love that idea of elasticity and just being a little bit more flexible, but it being something you're still going to achieve. But I've definitely had that in my head where like, if I started off my day, like if I'm trying to eat well and and I start off my day eating something crap, I'm like, well, that's it. The whole day is done, you know? And I just have that very much all or nothing kind of attitude towards it. And on that subject, actually me describing myself there as all or nothing. My friend the other day was saying to me, because we're talking about exercise, she was saying, if you keep saying that, that is going to be the way you are. Like you, you will be rigid in that label that you've put on yourself that will dictate how you behave. And I was like, oh, but this is just the way I am. Like, is that... Is that something do you think is, can be changed by habits or am I in the habit of believing that about myself? That's a great question. There's really interesting research by Carol Dweck at Stanford University on the power of having a growth mindset. Oh yeah. I quoted her in my books as well as you. (laughs) There you go. Yeah. It's so important. And, and the growth mindset, right. As you know, is that I believe that so many traits say intelligence are are things that I can change and improve and grow through failure, as opposed to an attitude that, that these traits are fixed and, and mostly, mostly growth mindset is about intelligence, but you can apply a growth mindset to many things. And I think what's interesting about the research on growth mindset is that it does seem that you can teach a growth mindset. There's evidence from experiments that when students, for instance, are given a new mental model and told, you know, your brain is actually elastic. That's literally what they use. We're talking about elastic habits, speaking of elastic, um, but in a very different context and, and that you can through practice and hard work, you can improve your intelligence. Students end up performing better in school than if they're told, you know, this is a fixed trait. And if you do poorly, you can interpret that as a failure of you. So I'm taking that back to what you're saying. I think it's, it's not, in life generally as effective to think of yourself as a finished product as it is to think of yourself as a work in progress. But the good news is even if you do think of yourself as a finished product, which it sounds like you do from the way you describe yourself, you can change that. There's, if you read a bit more about how much evidence there is showing that on most traits, we are works in progress on most dimensions, it's possible to change that can open your mind to possibilities and change the way you view things. The biggest names in tennis are coming to Paris for the most anticipated Roland Garros in years. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. Experience three weeks of unparalleled tournament access as the world's top players in tennis face off against each other. Will the veteran champions continue their dominance or will a fresh face emerge to challenge their legacy on the clay courts? Daily live coverage of this epic showdown begins Monday, May 20th. Don't miss a matchup. Stream it now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. 
Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. With certain things, I find that I seem to have quite a fixed mindset, but then... Um, with anxiety, I guess I've done so much work on it myself to get to a point of, you know, owning it, which is the the whole theme of the podcast. But some I, this is quite probably a controversial thing to say, but I have never liked the idea of labeling myself as an anxious person or when someone messages me and say, says, oh, oh, I have an anxiety disorder. I'm always curious whether telling someone that they have a disorder when anxiety it could just be a, a stress response that's flaring up from time to time if you're putting that label on someone is it is it boxing them into that behavior they're going to always behave as an, as an anxious person they're going to think that this is the way they are it's unchangeable and you're going to live within the confinements of this label and it won't might not serve you all that well like for me it's been really powerful to never describe or define myself as an anxious person but just as like you know I'm a human being and sometimes I feel anxiety and sometimes I don't feel it at all what do you what do you think there I don't know if great data on this specifically about but it's certainly true that labels can shape our beliefs right stereotypes shape our beliefs and stereotypes are really labels and that once we believe something that can shape our actions so it's with all of those different connections I think your hypothesis makes a lot of sense that we would want to not give someone the label of anxious because that might shape their belief that I am anxious and that is a, is a stable trait and it's not changeable. It seems like the more we can do to reinforce the message that you're not a type of person, you are a person and a work in progress and I won't label you in a certain way. I'll instead describe you as, as changeable, that that should be more effective. But, but I don't know of a specific study yeah. showing that. Okay. Speaking of of habits that will help us to better manage our anxiety, I had a conversation with, I don't know if you know Dr. Judson Brewer? I don't. He's a neuroscientist. I'm sure he, you've crossed paths at some in some circles, but he has recently written a book about, obviously habits are like a hot topic at the moment, but for him, he applied the habit loop to our experience of anxiety. So he, for him, mm-hmm. anxiety was some is something that has very much like the trigger, such as an anxious thought, the behavior feeling anxious or avoiding something and then not really a reward but like a result um, and then therefore it can be some become something you can break which I thought was really interesting that you know we can look at anxiety as a habit to unpack as a part of as, as opposed to just thinking of habits to implement. That is really really interesting the way that he's unpacked that. I, I should say I have I have almost no knowledge or training I have no training and almost no knowledge of neuroscience it's to me it's like a complete foreign planet from the things that I study because I 
instead of studying what's happening inside the brain, I study the choices that people make. And you'd think these things are so related and yet they tend to be studied in isolation, which is a problem for yeah. sure. That's uh, it's really interesting. I hadn't, I haven't encountered his work and I haven't encountered that model, but I'm intrigued. Yeah. I think it's, it's interesting to think of it as something that we are, you know, that, that whole trigger behavior result thing is it's applicable. It's just, it was a fresh way of looking at it, but to go back to general change that people might want to make, whether it's to improve their anxiety or just to improve their well-being in their life, what are the most common roadblocks that we're coming up against? Yeah. In the book, I tried to organize the writing around different roadblocks that seem very common. I'm sure I missed some that someone would say, oh no, my roadblock isn't here. But the <laughs> most common ones I've seen are the challenge of getting started, which is where the book begins naturally, followed by the challenge of our impulsivity, that what feels good in the moment is something we overweight when making decisions relative to what will be best for us in the long run. And so that leads to some bad decisions or decisions that we might want to change. Then the flip side of that, that tendency to be impulsive is that we often procrastinate on doing things we should do. So there, there's another barrier there, which is that tendency to put off until tomorrow what we really should be doing today. From procrastination, I turned to the topic of actually forgetfulness, which could easily also have been called flake out. But Many of us, I think, underappreciate how potent this is, how often, because it's not top of mind, it's not salient, it's not at the top of a priority list, we fail to make good decisions or follow through on our intentions. So I think that's a really important one that, that should get more attention. And after forgetting, I turn to laziness or the tendency we have to take the path of least resistance and, and look for the easy and and quick way to get something done. And then the last couple of chapters focus on two more barriers that are very related. One of them is confidence. And by that, I mean a lack of confidence or a lack of self-efficacy, which can be a barrier. If you don't believe you can accomplish a goal and you don't have the confidence, then you may not actually accomplish it. And finally, conformity, which is a barrier when the people around you are not showing you what you're capable of and that supporting you and showing you what's possible. And so I, I see it as very related to confidence, but but a little bit separate. And actually at, at the very end of the book, I talk about the barrier or the obstacle of maintaining change, which is really normally it's that all of the other obstacles just don't go away after you've made a little bit of progress. And so you have to you have to keep paying attention to them. But maintenance is in itself a barrier yeah absolutely I loved the part where you discuss how we don't see our lives as on a continuum but more so in episodes or that there's story arcs and I think that that was for me a real takeaway in that you can decide when it comes to better managing anxiety that maybe you could consider an anxious wave or an anxious period as one of those arcs that you then can even just by cognitively thinking that you're going to then come out of this arc that gives you almost a fresh start, which I know you say is incredibly powerful. Yeah, I love the way that you've tied that with anxiety. The research that I have done was motivated by spending time, again, actually at Google, I, I, I have worked with many companies, but both of these stories that <laughs> I'm telling right now about company partnerships happen to involve Google. So this was a, a visit I made prior to the gym study I described earlier on habits, 
where I was presenting some of my work to a bunch of folks in their human resources department. They call it the people analytics department. I was telling them about different tools we could use from behavioral science to nudge people towards decisions that would improve their health and wellness and their productivity and their savings. And I got this really great question. And the question was, is there some ideal time to encourage people to make those kinds of change? And that led me to start studying the question of when are we most open to change? And I had the intuition right away, and many people do when they hear that question, that maybe New Year's was Mm -hmm. sort of a special moment when people are particularly open to change. But that intuition is actually something that led me and my collaborators, Hang Chen Dai and Jason Reese, to start thinking more deeply about whether New Year's is something special or just a well-known example of a category of moments in our lives when we're particularly open to change. And as we started trying to understand when, when might people be open to change, how do we categorize our lives? We read the literature by psychologists on autobiographical memory and discovered that the way people think about time tends to not be linear, but rather we think about memories and we think about our lives as if we are protagonists in a a book or a novel of some kind. Um, And we categorize time into chapters. So you might have the college years, the years living in London, right? The years working at employer X, the years with significant other Y, right? And so you have all of those categories and the boundaries you put around time shape when you feel ready to change. Because when you sort of put one period behind you and you say, okay, that chapter is closed. I'm opening a new one. You feel more motivated to make a change. And you, you do for a few reasons. One is that you can say that was the old me like last year. That was the old me. This is the new me. The new me is going to be different. It's easier because you see that segmentation of time to be optimistic that whatever failures you had in the past were the failings of a different person practically. Yeah. The, the other thing is that it causes you to step back and think big picture about your life. And, and that also makes you more likely to reflect on your goals and, and consider doing things to pursue your goals. So we've shown that there are lots of dates from the start of a new week or a new month, the celebration of a birthday, the beginning of spring, the celebration of a holiday that feels like it marks a fresh start. So think more New Year's and Labor Day and less Valentine's Day, but there are lots of holidays and and different cultures have different holidays that feel like fresh start moments. At all those moments, people are more likely to visit the gym at a high frequency. They're more likely to set goals on a popular goal setting website. They're more likely to search for the term diet on Google. And we can also use our understanding of fresh starts to actually motivate change. So if we, for instance, give someone a calendar and say, to choose a date on this calendar when you most want to start getting reminders to pursue a goal that you've been meaning to pursue. And we change the labels. So one person's calendar shows the third Thursday in March with a circle around it. And another person's just shows that labeled as the first day of spring. The person who sees it as the first day of spring is much more likely to find that to be an appealing date to begin change because it resonates. Oh, that is a new beginning date. And so anyway, there's lots of really interesting thing around things around fresh starts that can be helpful. And I, I really love your idea that we could think about anxiety as related and, and say, if I've been experiencing anxiety, but it was 
it was maybe related to something that's changed in my life or I could bucket it in that past period, maybe I'll feel more comfortable moving forward and expecting better outcomes and less anxiety. Yeah, I just think it would be helpful for people to try and harness their own feeling of a, of a fresh start or a blank slate when it comes to anything that adds to their anxiety or habits that contribute to feeling better. But it mightn't be a case of a new year or a Monday or, a, you know, it might be more it's just really how you've been feeling and there mightn't be any significant change going on in your life, but you might be able to decide to embark upon change yourself. So we have to kind of create a blank slate, maybe where there isn't an obvious one. Yeah, it's really interesting. You know, I think I'm so interested in that question of how can we create blank slates when there are not obvious ones. I will say that we in my research team has tried to see if we can point to dates that people might not otherwise recognize as fresh start moments and, and create a sense of a fresh start. And we found it hard unless there was really already something compelling about it. So let me give you an example. We, we tried studies where we said it's the hundredth day of the year. It's the perfect time for a fresh start. You know, don't you want to create a fresh start? And that was just people looked at us basically like we were crazy. Um, But when we pointed out today is the first day of summer break for your university, it's a fresh start. Or today's the first day of spring, it's a fresh start. Those were moments that, or today is your birthday, it's a fresh start. Maybe you should set a resolution or create a goal. Those are dates that people might not have already understood to be fresh starts, but they recognized them when they were pointed out. And so there was potential in them. And I think Mondays are dates that have that potential that we recognize, but may not fully capitalize on. We see it happens naturally that people use Mondays, but maybe with a little nudge, we can compel them to use a Monday even more purposefully. So I think the trick is that, that they can't be, we don't think just pulled out of thin air. There needs to be some meaning and, and sense that this, this moment has the potential to be a real fresh start rather than just deciding it will be. So the roadblocks that you talk about are the most commonly experienced roadblocks, but you say that we have been maybe getting it wrong and that we've been subscribing to a one size fits all approach to achieving our goals. So how would we, I guess, narrow our focus down and, and personalize things for ourselves using your material? It was really one of the main goals of writing the book was to try to lay out all the best science that could be helpful to people seeking change in their own lives or trying to help others make it to be really clear about what works, but not just what works on average, but what works when. And to clarify that, right, for instance, if if the barrier is habit, here's some tools that you can use, right? If you're if the barrier is the, the path of least resistance resistance isn't aligned with what you want to be doing and your automatic processes aren't aligned with with your goals, then trying to work towards forming a habit in the ways that we've already discussed can be really useful. If the barrier is that you're not enjoying what you're doing, for instance, you find it to be a chore to pursue your goals, then there's a whole set of strategies you'll want to use. If the barrier is self-confidence, there's a whole set of strategies. So I hope that in, in reading the book, people will be able to see themselves in some of the chapters, maybe all of them, but they'll they'll also recognize different goals align with different barriers, right? The reason that I haven't yet signed up to start saving for a 401k might be that I just keep forgetting. And that's a really different challenge. Um, or the reason I'm not going to the gym is that I haven't made a plan. I haven't scheduled workouts with a partner. I haven't figured out how I'm going to motivate myself to do it. That's really different than I just 
find it to be a chore to do these things. And so you need really different solutions. Yeah. It's hard, it's hard to articulate and, yeah. and, and give you sort of the menu of options, but that's the, I tried to structure the book in a way that would provide that guidance to a reader. Yeah, no, you do it so, so wonderfully. I wanted to ask you about decision-making. So this is a big source of anxiety for my listeners. I get a lot of messages on Instagram saying, I'm feeling really overwhelmed. I'm faced with this massive decision. And obviously it's wrapped up in a lot of uncertainty, which I think you could say arguably is at the root of, of all anxiety. So what advice do you have, like practical advice for making decision-making easier? Because I presume it's not just as simple as like a pros and cons list and which one is longer. Yeah, decision decision making is tough. I teach a 28 day class to my Wharton MBAs about decision making. There's so many ways that we can improve it and so many barriers to making the very best decisions. But let me just say one thing that I have found very freeing. My dissertation advisor, Max Bazerman, who's a professor at Harvard Business School and uh, one of the world's great decision-making scholars and has written many books on this topic, said to me, it was very freeing, which is if a decision is difficult, you, you face two choices and you're really struggling to decide which is the right option. That's actually that's a situation where you take a deep breath and realize, wow, I'm so lucky. It doesn't matter that much, which I choose if it's, if it's that hard, it yeah. means probably the right, the pros and cons are, are tight. It's a close race. So those are the decisions actually where you probably can't go terribly wrong. It's the, it's the decisions where it's obvious where you don't want to make the wrong choice. And so actually I think that mentality, recognizing that when there's really a lot of tension, it's a really close call it'll be fine either way, most likely. Uh, the other thing he often says is you don't sweat the small stuff. If you make the wrong decision about the ice cream flavor, your life will be fine. It, and it's only really worth worrying about the decisions that are, are big decisions. Like who will your life partner be? Where will you work? Where will you live? Um, those kinds of decisions do matter and they are big, but we often just as we obsess about these decisions where it's a really close call and either way it's going to be fine. And we also obsess a lot about small decisions. Happily, if we can step back and recognize in both of those cases, any choice will be all right. That can be really freeing. And then like give yourself the permission to make a mistake as well. If it is a bigger life thing, you know, I, sometimes what I find helpful is to allow yourself really consider the worst case scenario. Like what if this doesn't work out? I don't know if that's an effective way of of looking at decision making because we're so frightened of things not working out well what if we just consider what that might look like yeah this is i guess decision scientists might call that doing something like a a pre-mortem which yeah. is to think okay ima yeah imagine this goes wrong what happened and how and and also you can think how bad is it really what's sort of the worst case scenario a negotiation expert often talks about your BATNA, your best alternative to a negotiated agreement, which is what, what happens if you can't reach the, the outcome you're gunning for and in, in a compromise or a, a, an agreement with the other party. And I think it is useful to contemplate that and recognize, hopefully, that it isn't terrible. And if it is going to be a really terrible outcome, then it makes you more motivated to to make concessions and to, and to figure out how do you how do you make sure that you don't end up in that bad situation i think that i am guilty probably of all of the roadblocks that you lay out in the book i think every single one of them I'm like yeah that's me yeah that's also me that's me too and sometimes i just feel almost like there's so much 
like required to make a change in me overcoming or dealing with each of these obstacles you know one by one but I have found that when it comes to anxiety it helps to work with yourself rather than to work against yourself and do you find that with a lot of like change are we are we working against ourselves by trying to change our nature I think that an insight at the heart of a lot of my advice in the book that's it's not just advice. It's what science is suggesting can be most effective. Yeah. A lot of those strategies involve just changing the equation so that the, the barrier becomes the solution. So for instance, if, if laziness is a barrier, the best thing to do, and laziness is often a barrier. We often want the past path of least resistance. The best thing to do is actually make the easiest thing to do what's in your best interest and what, what make that the outcome or create a habit so that you put the easy thing on autopilot and then the path of least resistance is to do what you always do in terms of impulsivity, which is a major barrier. The best solution tends to be trying actually to, instead of just doing it as Nike would say, when you have a goal and you want to achieve something, you actually do better when you find a way to pursue the goal. That's fun so that you're not working against impulsivity and trying to dredge up the willpower to drag yourself to the gym or drag yourself to the job interview, but you're finding a way to actually make the thing that's good for you enjoyable in the moment so that you will look forward to it and you won't have to dread it and use that, that willpower. So I think you're exactly right that we don't want to always be pushing against these barriers. Instead, we want to outsmart them and actually figure out how do we make our strategy one that works works with human nature. Yeah, absolutely. Because you don't want to create more tension and more by resisting our nature, by resisting what is. That often does kind of bring a lot of anxiety up for people. So I guess there's a fine line between working with yourself and then like pushing yourself in, to fit into something that maybe it just isn't you. I always like ask people, you know, try and consider when you're when you're looking at something, are you saying no to this because is your anxiety saying no to it or is it your personality saying no to it? And that kind of helps sometimes to, to know whether it's worth pushing against or respecting maybe your limitations sometimes. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I have to ask you about temptation bundling because this is what I quoted your paper on in my in my second book, which was all about confidence. I just find it fascinating. And just for me, it was just like, oh, this is like such an amazing solution to something like tack on a treat to something that, you know, you know is good for you, but you don't look forward to. So can I ask you to explain how that works and how, how people can maybe, I guess, action that in their life? Yeah, absolutely. Temptation bundling is actually the result of some research I did in graduate school, um, meaning research that fixed my own life or research that was motivated by a solution I found in my life. And then I thought maybe I should study this because it might help other people. And it was the problem I was facing was that I would get home at the end of a long day of class and I was not motivated to do my homework. I just wanted to curl up on the couch and binge watch TV. And I also couldn't motivate myself to go to the gym, which I knew was really important to my mental health and I just, I was too tired. I didn't want to, it didn't sound fun at all. And I realized I actually could solve both problems by doing what I now call temptation bundling. So I, I only let myself listen to tempting audio novels, which became my go-to guilty pleasure. Some people do it with TV shows, but for me, that was too much sensory input. I only let myself listen to tempting audio novels while I was exercising. So I'd come home, I'd start 
finding myself craving trips to the gym because I was listening to books like the Da Vinci Code and the Twilight novels and um, the Hunger Games series. And all I wanted to do was find out what happened next. And I'd, I'd sort of rush to the gym. I'd get in a great workout where my heart rate was buzzing and I didn't even notice the time passing. The workout wasn't a chore. It was a pleasure because I was so engrossed in my novel and I'd come home energized and ready to get my work done. And I'd gotten my entertainment fix. So this was so transformative for me that I ended up doing research showing that temptation bundling can help other people too, that giving them the ability to pair or something indulgent with what normally felt like a chore increases their engagement and their enjoyment of, of that chore. So and, and ceases to feel like a chore. There's lots of ways you can do it. I have studied it largely with exercise, but there's a really wonderful paper by other scholars, Ayelet Fishbach and Caitlin Woolley from the University of Chicago showing it can help with schoolwork too. They had kids who were able to enjoy snacks and listen to music and use markers to do their math worksheets. And those kids actually persisted for longer than kids who just had to do them under regular circumstances. So finding ways to bundle enjoyable things or only let yourself say, listen to your favorite podcast while you're doing household chores or making a homemade meal or pick up your favorite food on the way to the library. These are all different ways that we can motivate ourselves to achieve more. And this is particularly useful in the context where whatever it is you want to do that's good for you in the long run feels unpleasant in the heat of the moment. So you can transform it into something you look forward to and sort of beat that temptation barrier. It's so powerful. I want to finish by asking you about, I guess I think the the rhetoric has changed in the last few years. I don't know if you've, I'm sure you've noticed, but especially in the, at the turn of the year, we're no longer saying new year, new me. We're saying new year, same me. And there's a real, you know, shift back against this need to always be improving and people allowing themselves just be as they are how have you noticed this has impacted on on your work or what are you seeing changing on at a societal level there are we still are we still striving for change to the same extent that we were or are we are we allowing ourselves are we more forgiving of ourselves for the things for these boundaries that, or these roadblocks that we come up against it's a really interesting question i do feel like we're a bit more forgiving which is good i don't think we've stopped striving for change but maybe there's a bit of more of a recognition that it might be two steps forward, one step backwards, and that we shouldn't expect to have perfect bodies or perfect lives. And we shouldn't expect to have perfect habits, but maybe elastic ones will be more effective. Yeah. Um, I do think perfection is going out of vogue. And, and that's a good thing because I hope another lesson of my book is that change is really hard and you have to be prepared for setbacks. And many of the things that work and, and help make robust change are strategies that prepare us for setbacks like elastic habits. So I, I think it's great that we're recognizing the reality of life and, and not striving to be perfect, but just better. And, you know, Carol Dweck, I think would agree with that as well. It's there's the mindset that we can improve and it may feel more realistic if, if the end goal is less out of reach. I think that's the key takeaway for me. Um, and it's a wonderful approach to anxiety because I think when someone's suffering with anxiety, they're very, you know, they can be all or nothing and thinking, oh, well, I'm a disaster. Or I'm, like I'm hopeless or, you know, I'm, you know, I need to learn not to be anxious ever. But like we're going to be anxious sometimes. We're all human beings. Even the most chilled out person is going to feel anxiety rise. So that elastic mentality, whether you apply it to your habits or your anxiety or bringing about change and giving yourself that buffer area of, of space where you can try again or 
maybe if you didn't do it at 7am, bring it into your day at least, you know, to, to hit that mark. It's really motivating and encouraging without being like berating yourself. Yeah, I love that way of putting it. Katie Milkman, I can't thank you enough for your time. I've so enjoyed chatting to you. It's just so much to take from this um, and I'm sure my listeners will get a lot from it. And congratulations on your incredible book. I'm sure it's it's going to change so many lives and just give people, you know, the power to actually not just talk about change, but actually implement the change that will really serve them better uh, in their lives. So yeah, congratulations and thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me. This was just lovely. Step onto the legendary clay courts of Roland Garros, where the world's best players battle it out for a chance to win the French Open title. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV, live in HD. Don't miss a moment with daily live coverage and match replays on demand, beginning Monday, May 20th. Be there for all the unforgettable moments. Stream now with Tennis Channel Plus. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. The easiest way to access Owning It Real Time is to head to the link in the episode description or episode details, whatever you call them, show notes. You will find the link in there at the top. You can sign up right away for Owning It Real Time and access a full library of 10 situation-specific audio guides that will help you own your anxiety even more than you've ever done before.